0: Romans chapter 9 and oh we got down through verse 13 last time. Why don't we um, why't we back up a little bit? Verse eight, let's get it there. Romans 9 verse eight. that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So we've got uh, we've got that far into the passage, and Paul is um, he's bringing us, and we've already. Uh, said into a uh, into a dispensational section here of the book of Romans he's ta- he's talking in in uh, Romans 9 10 and 11 about the nation of Israel and if all of what he told us in the first eight chapters is true about the uh, Gentile salvation and there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile and and the law is is uh, gone and grace is now reigning <coughs> excuse me. What about Israel? And, uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is essentially Paul's, uh, treatise on Israelology. The, uh, the, the study of the nation of Israel, in particular, how it relates to the dispensation of the grace of God. So, it's a, it's a heavy, um, dispensational content here and in the, uh, in that context, in the context of dispensational changes and, uh, and movement and the, the program of God moving, progressing forward, the issue of the sovereignty of God. Uh, comes up and it comes in uh, heavy in this context because the sovereignty of God um, shows itself in some places uh, um, dramatically. The sovereignty of God shows itself in creation. God made uh, a, a, a mouse the size that he made it and he made an elephant the size that he made it. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to. Because for no other reason, there was no one uh, telling him how to do it. There was no one telling him why he should do it one way or another. He simply did it because that was his will, according to the good pleasure of his will. So he created uh, heaven and earth the way he did because it pleased him. That's the sovereignty of God. So it shows itself in creation. It shows itself in salvation. And that uh, uh, comes up here. It shows itself in the dispensations and in how the program of God moves forward and how God changes things, whether man uh, likes it or not. And we see men getting, uh, getting rolled over by these dispensational changes because they try to resist the sovereign will of God. And when God says, I'm making a right turn, we all make the right turn with him. We don't say, well, I don't want to make a right turn here. I'm just going to keep going straight because you end up uh, lost. So the, so the sovereignty of God and, the, and this dispensational uh, movement and progression go hand in hand in this uh, passage of Scripture heavily. And we, we see them uh, come together here. So, Paul is talking about God making choices. Personal choices, national choices, dispensational choices. He chooses one people over another. He chooses one person as a head of that people over another. He chooses a direction to take that people and, uh, over another. To the end, that one people, the children of Jacob, he loves, and Esau and his uh, nation he hates. So, we, we saw all of that last week. Now, that theme um, continues and enlarges as we go down through. So, verse um, 13 again, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid! For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. So the question uh, Paul anticipates coming off of Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, and God making these choices... That, uh, in this particular instance, before the two children were even born, having done no good or evil, God decided uh, the, their posi- their relative positions that the elder would serve would be servant to the younger, and somebody could look at that and say, well, that's not fair; there, God is unrighteous." He can't uh, just make that, that kind of a choice with no regard to the, to the, to the character uh, of the person. And Paul's point here, uh, and down through this passage, is yes, he can. And the reason he can, as we go down through, is that he is sovereign. He is the Creator. No one can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And you want to see what the issue is um, there in verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion you get the idea there that the issue is the will of god and what he wants and that's when you come into this issue of sovereignty we need to to understand and to get and to trust and to know and believe and rejoice in the fact that god's will is always done That's sovereignty. Not only is God good and holy, not only does he have good intentions, he has the power to carry out those intentions regardless. Regardless of opposition, regardless of uh, of opponent, regardless of the will of any other being. You see all those I wills there in in verse 15? Why does God have mercy on people? Because He wants to, because it's His will to do it. People say, what about the heathen that never hear the gospel? It's not fair that they die and go to hell. No, listen, what's not fair is that we die and not go to hell. That's what's not fair. I've said to you before, hell is the only fair place in the universe. Heaven's not fair. You don't get to heaven by fairness. You get to heaven by grace, by mercy. You go to hell by fairness. You want God to be you don't want God to be fair with you. You want God to be merciful. And God is merciful because he wills to be merciful. And because he wills to be merciful, he also wills the means of that mercy. And men don't get to say to him, I don't like the way you do this. I wish you would do it some other way. You can wish all you want but you are not sovereign. God is sovereign. So he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth. It's not uh, not, uh, by the will of man. It's not of him that runneth. Going back to what uh, he said in verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. So it's not a matter of of human will, and it's not a matter of human effort. It's a matter of God's will, and what God has set up, and human beings coming into obedient line with that. Um, Hold your hand here. Come Come back to John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1 and this is a transdispensational principle God is not more sovereign in one dispensation than he is in another or less sovereign in one dispensation than he is in another God is sovereign he always was he always will be and the sovereignty of God is at issue in all dispensations and in every in the salvation of every soul John chapter 1, verse uh, 10. John speaking of the Lord. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He's the Creator. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood... Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's what Paul uh, says here in Romans chapter 9. It's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God, that showeth mercy. So the issue of being born again for those kingdom saints was not about uh, being a natural Jew any more than it, than it is today. There was a necessary faith. When the Lord Jesus Christ came, they had to make the move. That's why Jesus said, Father, all these that were Thine, Thou gavest Me. They believed God, they belonged to God in the prior dispensation. When Christ came along, God handed them over, and they came over, and they made the dispensational transition and latched on to the Son of God, to the Messiah, when he showed up. And and they recognized the dispensational change and went with it, and uh, for that reason, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. To them who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, um, come over to uh, take a look at James. Get a look at James chapter two. I want to get James chapter two, and I want to get um, Second Peter. First uh, Peter, First Peter one, James two, First Peter chapter one. When you understand the sovereignty of God, it is we were talking before the study. It's a tremendous comfort to a child of God, to someone who is. Um, In God's good graces, it's a tremendous strength and comfort to know that God is in control, that God is in charge, that the will of God happens regardless of the wickedness and the opposition uh, that we see out there. In fact, he uses that wickedness to forward his own uh, plan and his own purpose. And God hath created all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil, Solomon says. So there is nothing that thwarts the purpose of God. Of course, if you're not on the right side of God, then the sovereignty of God is a terrifying uh, reality for you. Um, So this issue of of sovereignty is a... uh, is a is a powerful mover in our lives, one way or the other. In the life, the, the sovereignty of the Creator and what that means to the creature is huge. It is uh, all encompassing. James chapter one, um, verse sixteen. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of His own will beget He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. So there it is again. Of His own will beget He us. Not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. First Peter chapter one. And you want to notice there too in James that how did he do that? By the word. We talked about that last time. First Peter chapter one. Um, verse 22. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren see that you love one another with with a pure heart fervently being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever not of corruptible seed that is the physical seed of Abraham but by incorruptible again not of blood that's what John is saying Your bloodline is not what does it for you. Talking to those Jews there. Peter says the same thing here and again. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass. And the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. It's not by the will of the flesh. The flesh, as uh, compared to the, to the sovereign will of God, is, is like dust. It, it, it is of no consequence. It's like grass. Uh, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, you remember we saw Paul's similar statement to the Thessalonians there when he says, "...I thank God that God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation." through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So the sovereignty of God is, is there. It's involved in, in, in our salvation. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. But, the, but again, and we won't dwell on it because we've talked about it already, the issue is not, I'm going to save you and you and not you and you and you and not you. God chooses the mean. That he would save people by his word by faith in his word, and when you go contrary to that, it doesn't matter how strong your will is or how hard you uh, you try to row against the uh, against the flow. You don't get anywhere against the will of God back in in Romans chapter nine. and the same thing is true in the dispensational Motions and movements of God's plan and God's will. You you get in line with it, or you get rolled over by it. And God makes no apology for that. He doesn't make accommodation. He doesn't uh, he doesn't compromise. God says, "This is how I want to do it, and this is how I'm going to do it, and I'm inviting you to." Uh, to get in line. Um, He saith to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Who does God have mercy on? Who does He have compassion on? Those who believe. What did John say? See, He has mercy and He has compassion through faith in His Word. So God's sovereignty says, here's what's true, and here's the deal. Believe it and get mercy and compassion, or reject it and get my wrath. That's the deal. Everybody's got the choice to get in line with the sovereign will of God or to kick against the pricks. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now, we're we're still talking here about nations and about dispensational movement. Of God, he talked about uh, Jacob and Esau. He talked about uh, Isaac and Ishmael. He taught all, all, these people are heads of nations, and we and we saw that last time. Now here we come to Pharaoh and and uh again you 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 notice when you study the sovereignty of God through the bible there are some some kind of classic definitive statements in the bible on the sovereignty of God and those come in the context of world leaders and of heads of nations it was nebuchadnezzar who said that, uh, that the heavens rule in the kingdom of men and, and God uh, uh, does what He will among the nations and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? That's one of the great uh, statements of the sovereignty of God. It was made by, a, by an unsaved uh, person who was king of the world. And you see it in Pharaoh. And you see it in Jacob. Jacob. And you see it in these in these heads of nations, because that 's what god is doing he 's in in israel 's program he 's moving these nations, and the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of waters he turneth it whithersoever he will, and the sovereignty of God applies itself to the to these uh national slash dispensational movements that we see through the Scripture as he deals with his nation, the nation Israel. So he says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that i might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth so pharaoh rises that is egypt rises to the level that it that it rose to in order that god could uh show his power to the world he raises up a great world power and then he brings his uh sovereign arm down upon it in a, in a uh, dramatic and spectacular and miraculous way so that the fame of it goes out over the globe and you see as, as Moses and as Joshua go for years and generations the nations that they encounter tremble remembering back to Egypt and to Pharaoh now let me ask you something How did God raise Pharaoh up? How did he raise Egypt up? For this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. Now what does that mean? How does the sovereignty of God work in situations like that? Well, from what we have in the record, I can tell you this. Egypt was... um, was a, uh, was a power back in the days of Jacob and the boys. You remember when we studied Joseph, what happened there is that God gave Joseph a dream. And Joseph told his brothers, and his brothers got mad at him, but nothing came of it. So God gave Joseph another dream. And he told his brothers again, and then they got really ticked off that time, and what did they do? They sold him into Egypt. And Joseph goes into Egypt, and he's uh, uh, blessed there, and he rises uh, um, to the. Actually, he's put in prison and has the opportunity there to interpret some other dreams for some people. Years later, Pharaoh has a dream, 400 years before this Pharaoh. And, uh, and they say, hey, there's this kid Joseph, who's not a kid anymore, in prison, who knows how to interpret dreams. And he tells Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh has the dream, and we won't go all through it, but he interprets the dream for him, and it's seven years of, of plenty, followed by seven years of famine, and Joseph says, here's what you do. In the seven years of plenty, you store up the food. In the seven years of famine, you'll have it. And what happened? You remember The nations, all the nations around had a seven-year-long party and then the food ran out. All except for Egypt where God put Joseph through a series of dreams. And what happened? The nations came to Egypt to get their food and first they gave them all their money and they bought food. Then they ate up all that food, and they didn't have any more money, so they came and they gave Pharaoh all their cattle, and they got food. And then they ate up all that food, and they didn't have any more cattle, so they gave them their land. And Egypt now owned the the surrounding nations, and the real estate, and those governments, and then they came back and and sold him their own bodies and their own souls. How did God raise Pharaoh up? How did he make Egypt that great world power that it was? He gave Joseph a dream. Then he gave him another one. Then he gave the baker and the butler a dream. Then he gave Pharaoh a dream. And it all, you can see the series of events. See, it's not God um you know kind of mystically and secretly and invisibly just you know raising these nations up and 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 causing them to fall there's there's a series of events that he works through that never violates the will of an individual or of a nation he only uh does what he knows needs to be done in order to get where he wants to be. So, for this same purpose, I've raised, so why did, why did God do that? He sent Joseph. Joseph himself said, look to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Who sent Joseph into Egypt? His brothers or God? Well, the question is, the answer is yes. Both And God used the wickedness of those 11 boys to further the greatness and the goodness and the mercy of his plan. To save Israel and ultimately to destroy Egypt. He raised it up so that he could show his power in it that My name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath He mercy, verse 18, on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will He hardeneth. Now there we go. Now come, come back to Exodus chapter 4. Because another. Um, when you talk about the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men, you have to talk about Pharaoh... And God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He has mercy on whom He will have mercy, and whom He will He hardeneth. Exodus chapter four uh, is an interesting chapter on um, on the sovereignty of God, because you see it working with two heads of nations in uh, very different ways, with very different results. Uh, the verse, single verse we're looking for is Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. So, God clearly is going to harden the Pharaoh's heart. God, his will is that Pharaoh refuse to let the people go. So, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will fulfill God's will. Now, how does he do that? Well, I want you to see, and we're going to back up a little bit in this passage in a minute, but first he says, in the context of hardening his heart, he says, Listen, Moses, when you go into Egypt, I want you to do, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Now, that statement is not uh, something that you want on your lips when you walk in To Pharaoh's court, to look Pharaoh in the eye and say, number one, let my people go. And number two, if you don't, I'm going to kill your son. That's not a smart move if you're trying to get Pharaoh to acquiesce. It's a brilliant move if you're trying to get Pharaoh to say, you know what? Take his head off. <laughs> that's that's what you say to Pharaoh if you want to harden Pharaoh's heart. Hold your hand here. Get uh, get Proverbs chapter twenty nine. Proverbs chapter twenty nine. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, you can see it right there. First, he goes and he does these these uh, kind of small miracles before him that his own magicians are able to duplicate. So he gives Pharaoh a a false sense of, uh, of the power of God, or at least a small sense, not a false sense, but a small sense of the power of God, to build up his confidence. And then he says, "Now, now that you've seen the great power of God, I demand that you let these people go." What's Pharaoh going to say? God. Now, listen. If Pharaoh was a different kind of person, he might he might have handled it differently. But God knows the heart. He knows what's in man, and He knows. Okay, here's a guy. What was that chapter, again? Uh, chapter twenty-nine. God knows that he's got a guy here, a head of a nation, that he wants to move in a certain way. So he looks at that guy's heart. And he says, okay, here's the kind of guy he is. Here's what I want him to do. It's just a simple matter of putting the opportunity in front of him to do what I want him to do. I don't need to bend his will. I don't need to force him against his better judgment to do anything. I don't need to get inside his head in any miraculous spiritual sense. He got inside his head in a very psychological sense and a very uh, um, kind of hands-off kind of a way. He said, here's how you deal with Pharaoh, and that's going to produce the result I want. Proverbs chapter 29, first verse. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. See, that's Pharaoh. God looked at Pharaoh and he said, here's a guy who if I reprove him, Where he should have said, "God is reproving me." Of course, what do you, what would you have me to do? God knew that he wouldn't react that way. He knew that Pharaoh was the kind of guy who, with often reproof and with strong reproof, would harden himself. So God reproved him. He didn't have back to Exodus four. He didn't have Moses go in as he could have, and say. You know, oh great Pharaoh, you know, uh, uh, long live you know Pharaoh and and you know by thy greatness. Paul talked to the to the to the sovereigns that way. It's my uh, great honor and pleasure to to speak to you because I know that you have great knowledge of all of these things. And he could have went in like that and said, "We beg your your uh, patience and long suffering that you would let us go for three days into the wilderness and and worship our God." He could have done it that way, and Pharaoh may well have let them go, but God didn't want him to say yes. He wanted him to say no. So he didn't do it that way. So you look at that and you go, well, then it's God's fault Pharaoh refused. No, because Pharaoh should have taken the reproof like any creature should take reproof from his Creator and should have said again, yes, Lord, of course. Well, I'm sorry I did it wrong. What do I need to change? But Pharaoh didn't do that, and God knew he wouldn't do it. Back in Exodus chapter 4. Now, in this chapter, we have now Pharaoh again is a head of of the world power at the time. And God is dealing with him, and he's dealing with that nation through him. Because he's got some things he wants to do with that nation. Moses here is also, or at least a future... Uh, head of state, the leader of Israel. And God is dealing with Moses just as much in this passage as he's dealing with Pharaoh. And just as sovereignly, because God wants Moses to, to fulfill his will too. But God wants Moses to say yes. He wants Pharaoh to say no. So he handles these two men in two very different ways. Because Moses, at first, says no. And God says, well, that's not going to do, because that's not my will. My will is for you to say yes. So watch what he does. Exodus chapter 4 again, and... um, he, uh, God appears to Moses here in this passage out of the burning bush and uh, tells him, you need to go to Egypt and deliver my people in verse 10. Exodus 4, verse 10. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. So Moses has an excuse why he can't go and do what the Lord just told him to go and do. And the Lord said unto him, Go and do what I tell you or I'll kill your son. Is that what he said? No. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or the deaf, uh, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. You see how differently he handles Moses? He kind of coddles him. And he says, I'll be your support. And I'll be your strength. And I'll be your friend. And I'll be on your side. And I'll tell you what to say. And I'll be your, your, your voice. See, that's not how he handled Pharaoh. You know what it says about Moses? See, Pharaoh was hard-hearted. And just as many times, if not more, as it says throughout this uh, encounter here that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And which is true? Well, did Jacob's sons sell Joseph into Egypt or did God? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? See, Moses, it says about Moses that he was meek above all men on the earth. See, Moses was a different kind of man. Pharaoh was proud. Pharaoh was hard-hearted. Moses was meek and soft. You can see it here, his timidity. And soft-hearted. And God knew the hearts of these two men equally well. And he knew how to get Pharaoh, the kind of man he was, to do what he wanted him to do. And he knew how to get Moses, the kind of man he was, to do what he wanted him to do. So he says, I'll be with you. Uh, Now therefore go, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. And he said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of whom thou wilt send. Send someone else. I don't want to go and this is down into the excuses here, and the anger of the Lord, now God gets mad, was kindled against Moses, so what does he do? Moses, if you don't go, I'll kill you. Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart, and thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, And with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. Do you see what God does here? He he, he compromises, doesn't he? In order to get his will accomplished. He knew what he needed to do to get Moses to go along with the program. He knew what he needed to do to get Pharaoh to reject the program. And what he needed to do, he did. So what you see here is that in all of these things, in all of these um, uh, movements of the of the of the plan of God and the sovereignty of God in how He operates in the affairs of men, is that the sovereignty of God is. Uh, much more a function of the omniscience of God than it is of the omnipotence of God. That is, the sovereignty of God works in the affairs of men by what God knows more than by what He can do. It's not just... It's, when you talk about sovereignty, of the sovereignty of God in creation, you're talking about raw power and will and he's just doing what he wants to do and, 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 and there, is, there is nothing else. When you talk about the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men, there's a, there's a subtlety there and a nuance there because God is not a freight train uh, driving himself by, just by raw power over the will of men. So he doesn't do it by his power, he does it by his knowledge. He doesn't overpower the will or the mind, he simply outsmarts it. He does what he does because he knows how to get things done. He doesn't, uh, he's not a bull in a china shop, He is a, uh, he's a chess player. In his affairs with the dealings of men and nations, he's a chess player that never loses. Come back to Romans 9. You say, Well, I don't know about that analogy because how do you know? If he's not going to force his will by power, then how do you know he won't lose? Well, I know he won't lose. Because he already lost once. And he won anyway. Because I don't need to remind you that the opponent on the other side of the table already took his king off the board once, captured his king. And Satan won. And he was jumping up and down saying, I won. And God said, "Now hold on a minute, son. It's my move. And Satan said, wait a minute. What do you mean your move? There are no more moves. I got your king. And God said, no, no. And he outsmarted him. And in losing, he won. That's how I know that God can't lose. Because even when he loses, the, the foolishness of God and the weakness of God is wiser and stronger than anything that anyone can throw at him. See, that's sovereignty. That's when you can do whatever you want to do and nobody can say anything about it. Because you're smarter than they are. Back in Romans chapter 9, we'll close it up. Therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? So that's Paul's argument, and we'll look at that passage next week and we'll talk about the potter and the clay and, and vessels of honor and dishonor and all of those things. But Paul's point there is, is not to reason our way through the sovereignty of God kind of much like I'm doing here tonight. That Paul doesn't, doesn't spend a lot of time taking you down through these, through these roads that I just took you through. Paul says, look, here's the deal. You're a man. God's God. End of story. God is sovereign. We don't answer back and say, this is not right. God is God, and we're not. That's sovereignty. Now, it doesn't mean that all those things we just looked at aren't true. It just means that this is the bottom line. And this is Paul's, uh, Paul's answer. Paul's answer is not, um, is not a whole lot of explanation and reasoning. It's just, nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? That's Paul's answer. We'll stop there. Father, I pray that, um, that you would give us a good and a true and a right Vision and understanding and appreciation of your sovereignty. there are wrong views on all sides of this issue. And Father, I pray that uh, that we would by no means belittle your sovereign power, nor would we distort and misrepresent it in any way, Father, but that we would understand it and rejoice in it. We thank you, Father, that uh, wherever we come down, we know that uh, all things are in your hand. In our Savior's name, amen.